before you sit, let's pray. God, you truly are great. We live in a world full of lies and liars and imposters. We live in a world full of people that think that we should worship them for what they've done or what they've earned. But God, you are the only one who's truly worthy of our worship and praise, and you are great. And we fail in recognizing that and acknowledging that and in telling the world that we know that that's true. We get uh, embarrassed sometimes to say that we even believe in you or that we, that we love your son Jesus. And yet, God, you are great. You are the only great thing that there is. And so we just, before we even go on, God, we just want to acknowledge how truly, truly great you are. We are here because of you. We are here for you. We are here because we know that you will meet us in this place. God, thank you for who you are. Amen. You may be seated. Man, I'm really glad that was the last song because I got swept up in that whole how great is God and then I realized maybe there was one to go, but nope, that's it. Uh, well, we're going to wrap up our series today. Uh, kind of Jesus brings it all home in this series of uh, who's really looking back at you in the mirror. It hasn't been entirely comfortable, but it probably shouldn't have been. Realize everything we've uncovered here in these, these couple of chapters of Luke have basically been one long sermon by Jesus. It's all laid out in the Bible as one long message. We've covered it over the course of a number of weeks, but for Jesus, it was just one long teaching to this large group of people. And we need to realize that more than once, Jesus has has really made the point how we handle the things that we've been given on earth make a huge eternal difference. They do for us and they do for others. And that today in this, in this bring it home message, he's going to make that case really strongly once again. It's a, it's a lesson that reminds us that what we do with the resources that we've been given on earth have implications in eternity, not just for us, but for others. So how you choose to hear this message today, it's really a matter where your heart is at. How you hear what follows is up to you because This passage from Jesus is just pretty cut and dried. And what we need to do is look at it and say, where are we in the midst of it? So let's dig in. Luke 16, if you've got your Bibles. Luke 16, we're going to start in the 19th verse. We've got to make a lot of progress here because we've got a bunch of verses to work through. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Jesus lays out a description of a man who was wealthy beyond our real imagination. We've heard about people like this. These are the John D. Rockefellers, the the Bill Gates, uh, the Warren Buffetts of the world, the, the kind of people that we read about and we don't even understand when they try to explain them to us. We don't even understand what it's like to have the kind of money they have. He uses the word purple. Why is the clothes purple important? Well, that, that signifies that this man maybe isn't, but is trying to look like royalty because he can afford to. The purple dye came from a little sea snail, and it was incredibly expensive to make. Very few people wore purple. And then he talks about he wore fine linens, probably referring to his undergarments, something that the high priest did and something that royalty did. Folks like you and I, we didn't even dream about things like that. Jesus wants to make it clear that this guy is loaded. Then he goes on and he really sets the stage. And and it isn't just that he dresses like royalty. He eats like royalty. The words of Jesus, he feasted sumptuously every day. This guy never went hungry. 
He never worried about what he was going to eat. In fact, he probably called the shots for every meal every single day. And what Jesus is really doing here is he's drawing us in. First, he catches our imagination with the wealth, and then he gets us with the food. Because it doesn't take very long. If you were to pause, you would say, what in the world would I wear if I could wear anything? What would I eat if I could eat whatever I wanted all day, every day? If money was no object, where would you live? What would you drive? What would be on your table? What would you look like after a while? Jesus draws us in and, and basically gets us to ask ourselves, who would you and I be? But, but, but hang on now, before we go down the road of, of the wonders of winning the lottery, right? Jesus introduces us to another character. Verse 20. And at his gate was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. At the gate, immediately outside the rich man's house, is a man named Lazarus. And Lazarus is poor. His body's covered with sores, no doubt infection and illness and insects and little animals and who knows what. Every single time this rich man walks into and out of his house, he passes by the poor man Lazarus sitting at his gate. Every single time. Lazarus has put himself there for a reason, just simply to be noticed, but the rich man does nothing. It says that Lazarus spends his day wishing, dreaming about eating something, anything that might fall from the rich man's table, from these feasts that he has every day. He's not looking for recognition. He's not even looking to be treated as a human. He's looking for the rich man to take some of the food that he throws away after his feast and just bring it outside and set it on the ground so that Lazarus can eat. And yet not only does he desired the crumbs from the table, he's got to compete with the dogs. Because the dogs that came to lick his sores probably ate like king's dogs in the man's house. We can't even imagine how difficult Lazarus' life would have been. There's really not a lot in your context or in my context that helps us to connect. We might have gone through tough spots. But the only guy that possibly has an opportunity to help this man ignores him and sends his dogs out to lick his sores. Whatever your debt or relationship woes or job struggles might be, they might be very real and they might really be challenging. But they're not this man's life as it is described to us by Jesus. The way Jesus lays it out, you and I have got it made. There's also something very significant about this passage. We've been looking at parable after parable after parable. And what Jesus does is He describes people by context by who they are, by what they do, or by what happens to them. This is the only time in this whole teaching of Jesus that He gives the man a name. Go ahead, go back, look through them. It's the only one in all the parables that's given a name. The only character. The rest of them are all described without a name, but Lazarus has a name. And the name means something significant. It means God has helped. That's significant. The rich man doesn't. But even in... All of what he doesn't have, God does. Even in his name, he has significance if he has no significance to anyone else. Verse 22, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. How about that for a death announcement in the Jerusalem Times? Think about that one. 
If you ever had to write an obituary, you think a long time about what it is that you want to say about the person that you want to have remembered. Poor Lazarus dies and is carried away by angels to Abraham's side. If you never knew Lazarus, you'd think that was one fortunate guy. He must have lived quite a life. Abraham's side, that's the place in the afterlife when you die a good death as a Jewish, as a faithful Jewish person, you go to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. They also known it as paradise. When Jesus was on the cross speaking to that thief who was next to him, who confessed Jesus and Jesus said, surely today you'll be with me in paradise. This is what he's talking about. Jesus hadn't died and come back and ascended to heaven yet. And so the language is a little bit different, but this is what they're talking about. Jesus never tells us anything about the man's faith, but in the simple phrase, we know much, much more about this man. He may have had nothing, but he knew his Creator. He might have been poor in worldly wealth, but he knew God. And he knew that one day he would spend eternity with him. But the obituary for the rich man that had everything in life, the obituary him for him in the Jerusalem Times says he died and was buried. Period all the Bible tells us. You ever wonder what your obituary might say? You ever kind of think about that and say, I hope they, I hope they gloss over that not so good stuff and they kind of just write about the highlight reel? Right? That's, that's what we hope for. Well, the rich man apparently got the highlight reel. He died and was buried. I hope I live my life in a way that my obituary says something more than he died and was buried. It's so abrupt and, and It's meant to be. Why is it abrupt? Because death is abrupt. And all the things that we have in this life that we think that we've earned, that we think that we own, that we think we have a right to, it all ends at that moment too. All of your stuff ends with you. Death is the end of worldly glory. It's the end of impressing people with what you have or what you've done or with what you can buy. Death is the earthly end of everything that is not of God. And so who are we living for? Because we're spiritual beings created to live for eternity. And in verse 23, it tells us about the rich man. It says, And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. See, the rich man received his his eternal reward. He fulfilled the desire of his heart the way that he'd lived his life apart from God. And that's the choice that we have too. Do we want to live this life next to God and with God, loving God, or do we want to spend our eternity apart from God? Because we get to do that here and we get to do that there, whatever it is that we choose. And he looks up and he sees his father Abraham far away and there at his side is the poor man Lazarus. It says Father Abraham because he would have been Jewish and all the Jewish would have understood Abraham as their father. But right now, Father Abraham can't do anything for him. He made his choice. I have to imagine for this rich man, for the first time in his whole life, he had that rut-row moment. He realized that there was nothing he could do, and so he calls out in verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. See, the rich man expected people to do things for him because of his wealth. He expected to trade money for favors. He expected that Lazarus would do something because he was rich, but he's no longer rich. He's just dead. And everything that he had is gone. So he calls out to Abraham. He knows who Abraham is. He calls him by name. But you know what else he knows? He knows who Lazarus is. 
Never spoken to Lazarus in his life. Never paid one bit of attention to Lazarus. In fact, he's probably walked by and put him out of his mind. And yet now he recognizes him and he asks him for help. He knew him from the days that he had spent in and out of his gate ignoring the poor man. Now the rich man expects Lazarus to comfort him in his pain like the thought ever crossed his mind about doing the same for Lazarus. wonder who I see every day that I don't notice. I wonder living out here in a, in a space that I'm very comfortable with, in a town and a communities around me that I know very well, I wonder how many people I encounter every day that I don't even notice. How many people do I see on the street? How many people do I pass? How many people do I see down the aisle in the store? And they're there and they don't even get a thought and my mind goes right past them. How many people do you see every single day you don't notice? See, this passage is here because we fit into the middle of it somewhere and I have to believe part of where we fit in is we've got Lazaruses around us all over the place. Maybe all they want to do is to be acknowledged as human. Who are the Lazaruses in your life? Verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your time received your good things. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Abraham is kind. He's gentle. He's polite. But eternity has been fixed. There is no turning back. There is no second chance. The rich man has what he asked for. You and I have this one life, the Bible says, to work out our salvation. The Bible says we work it out in fear and trembling. This, this passage should help us understand a little bit of fear and trembling. But salvation just isn't something that's meant to be just simply a free gift that we don't think about and we pull that card out after we die. Salvation is meant to be a day-by-day living of our life as Christians. It isn't something that happens then. It's something that we work on now. It is significant here and now. And the rich man just found out it is unchangeable. And if you think, well, I'm going to work out my salvation later. I'm going to get right with Jesus later on. I'm going to get into a story in a little bit that will just simply tell you, be careful, you might not have that time. Your salvation is significant now. He goes on and he says, and besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There's no traveling back and forth between heaven and hell or from hell to earth. and It just it doesn't work for us. There's a chasm that has been fixed and people cannot cross it. There's no one foot on either side. God allows us to spend eternity in the place of our choosing. And in this life, we choose heaven or we choose hell. Our faith, our non-faith, is our choice. We choose Jesus or we choose Satan. We choose Jesus' heavenly home or we choose Satan's home in hell. And this is the life that that decision gets made. Who will you choose? The choice is permanent and eternal. It's no different than our call to be in the world but not of the world. We should be aware of the world around us. We should love the world around us, but we should not look like the world around us. We should not talk like the world around us. We should not be like the world around us. 
Now, it's important that we hold this teaching in the context of all the other parables that Jesus has had before it. See, not long ago we talked about the parable of the prodigal son, and we spent a few weeks doing it. Do you recall at the end of that parable, the, the older son comes home and there's this celebration going on and he knows something's up and so he asks one of the servants what's going on. He goes, hey, your, your brother is home and your, your father threw a party and he refuses to go inside. So the father who loves the older son comes out and he says, why won't you come in and celebrate with me because your brother who is gone, who's lost, has been found. We never know what happened to that older son. There's no resolution to that parable. Jesus ends it and that that older son is just simply outside the father's house. He's refused his father's hospitality and he stays away from his father's love. And now we see that in this passage a wealthy man who had all the luxuries that his money could afford and he chose to live his entire life outside of his father's love. And we find out what happens I'm not saying that this rich man is the older son, but there's a thread that Jesus is pulling between that older son and this rich man. Both are concerned about appearances. Both have their own sense of what is right and important and of what matters. Both have a sense of entitlement. And both know very clearly the power of the Father's love. And both refuse it. Verse 27, the rich man says to Abraham, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. He doesn't want his dad and brothers to end up where he is. It's too late for for him, but it may not be too late for them. See, they too would know the truth of God. They too would know who Father Abraham was. They would also have been living in a way that denies who they were created to be in favor of what they had created themselves into. See, we reach a day, and hopefully it's not too late, when the full magnitude of who God is and what God created us for becomes real to us. Some of us don't want the responsibility. And some of us embrace the Father's love. Verse 29, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham says, They have a lifetime of hearing God's Word. They've heard the truth. And the rich man says, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Nope. If they're not going to listen to God's Word, what makes them think that someone coming from the afterlife is going to change it? He says, send a person from the grave. That'll impress them. Do something miraculous. That'll catch their attention. And I wonder, how often do we try to impress God by saying, you know what, I'll believe you when you're real and you do this miracle that I need. Or I'll believe in you. If you change my life for the better, then I'll believe in you. If you give me what I really want, I'll believe that it came from you. I'll start reading my Bible when my life slows down and I have more time. I'll start giving you what you ask me for as soon as I feel like I have enough. But it'll never be enough. God's given us every opportunity, every truth, every reason to believe and trust Him right now. But do you? He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Can you say Jesus? Jesus who did rise from the grave and who is alive today. What's going to take for us to believe that Jesus is real and He is alive and He is as concerned with our present as He is with our eternity right now today? 
I think most of us are at an age and we're at a place in our health that we take death, death kind of lightly. And because we're afraid of even thinking about our own death, we don't really think too seriously about eternity. And so the idea of living eternity starting today is, is just a very foreign thought to us. And some of you have heard me talk about this before. It's been 22 years ago for me now, but I'm going to do it again today. I was an intern. I was serving a large congregation. Two pastors had just left for uh, school and health reasons, and it was just me and the senior. call came in one day that uh, a brother of one of the ladies of the church was in the hospital at the VA down in Minneapolis, and that he was dying. Would someone visit him? Well, I got the call. I wasn't a member of the church, and in fact, I found out the pastor knew about him a lot more than I did. There was a reason the pastor sent me to see him. So I went down and waded through the, the complex that is the VA, scared to death, had no idea what I was getting into. I've never been into a visit of this sort before. And he was in the cardiac care ICU, and I needed to get through two security stations in order to even get to see him. And I knew I was so far in over my head. I had no idea. I was an intern. I wasn't a pastor. I hadn't finished seminary. I wasn't ready for a visit with a man who was probably dying. I didn't know what to say, and I knew it. So I said, God, please give me the words. They buzzed me in, and I walked, walked through this two, two big doors into this imposing glass-surrounded room. And here was a man hooked up to every machine you could imagine. And on the one side of the bed was his two sisters and his mother. And in walks me, shaking in my shoes, carrying my little communion kit, saying, Hello. And I looked at the one sister that I knew, and I said, Well, what can I do? And she says, This is our brother Gordon. This is my mom. Thanks for coming to see him. And they walked out. Okay. So I grabbed a chair and I pulled it up next to him and I said, Hey, Gordon, my name's Steve. I'm, I'm not really a pastor. Not a fake pastor, but I'm not a real pastor yet. I'm an intern. Your sister called and asked if I could come in to visit. What do you want to talk about? He was suffering from other things, congestive heart failure, so right away it was kind of hard for him to talk and he choked out his response and he says you're the pastor you're used to talking to people no I'm an intern I don't get to do that kind of talking but I could see it was on my shoulders and I looked him straight in the eyes and in my, my most compassionate tone I said Gordon you're the one who's dying I got a lot more time to talk oh you've got to be kidding me did I really say that I mean I, I in my mind I'm looking up to God going I asked you to give me the right words and that falls out of my mouth And I'm about to apologize. And Gordon says, you're right, I am. Thanks for being honest about that. Nobody wants to talk about it. I don't have many days left. What followed was one of the most holy ground. I don't know another word to describe it. It's one of the most holy ground moments I've ever experienced in my whole life. Gordon started talking. Not a little bit. He talked about a lot. He talked about a life filled with rage and mistreating people. He told me about every person that he had ever done wrong, and there was a lot of them. And he told me what he did, and I didn't want to hear it all. And he just went on and on and on. He 
needed to purge his soul if for no reason other than he didn't want to die with all that guilt. I finally asked him, I, I said, Gordon, do you have any regrets after all that? And he said, you know, I regret all of it. I regret, all, I regret how I treated my dog. My dog was a better person than I was. He said, but most of all, what I regret is that I'm not going to be in heaven. See, because my, I'm going to die before my sisters and my mom, and I'm not going to be there to greet them when they die. That's my greatest regret. He said, I know where I'm going, and it terrifies me because I deserve it. I said, Gordon, do you want to go to heaven? Of course. He said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but God doesn't let men like me in after they've lived lives like I've lived. I know that. I said, oh, Gordon, that's not the God I know. I told him that was true if he was hoping to get in on his old good deeds, which with all due respect seemed to be greatly lacking in his life. I said, that doesn't matter because that isn't going to work anyway. What matters in heaven is whether or not we love Jesus in this life, whether we know that we're sinners and whether we know that we're in need of a Savior. See, your sin isn't what decides whether you're worthy of heaven. Your love for Jesus and whether you acknowledge Him as God's only Son who died and was raised from the grave so that your sin could be forgiven is what matters. Because your sinfulness will forever separate you from God. But God's love for you and Jesus is what will draw you close. And he looked me straight in the eye and he said, So let me get this straight, Pastor. I'm only an intern, Gordon. I live my whole life like I did. And you're telling me that here at the end, I can just ask for forgiveness. I can tell Jesus thank you. And I get in. That hardly seems fair to my mom and sisters. I said, well, it might not make sense to us, Gordon, but it's how God chooses to love on us. God doesn't want anyone to be in he- not to be in heaven with Him. God wants all of us to be there, Gordon. But it isn't as simple as just saying you want to go. That big, gruffy, old curmudgeon of a man lying next to me hooked up to machines for his cancer, for his emphysema, for his congestive heart failure, for all of the other things that his life had amounted to, was lying in that bed, hardly able to read. He starts to cry and he says, You're serious. God would even let me in now. I said, I'm serious. And I know that, Gordon, because it's what the Bible says. He goes, What do I need to do? I don't want to die like this. And I said, well, you've taken a huge first step, Gordon. We held hands and we prayed. And I prayed out loud for him. And he nodded his response and told Jesus he was sorry because he had just confessed his entire life. We prayed that Gordon knew that he was a sinner and that he asked Jesus to forgive him. And even in his last hour, he invited Jesus into his heart. And I just sat there because I didn't know what to say. And I said, how do you feel? And he said, I feel really good. Then it got awkward, so I said, I'm going to go get your mom and sisters now. And he said, okay. So they came walking in the room, and through all the machines, Gordon's smiling. Gordon looks completely different. And his sister looks at me and goes, what happened? And I said, Gordon, I'd like to share communion with you. And they looked at me. Yeah. Gordon wants to share that physical reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection because Gordon believes in Jesus. So we had communion, just the five of us in that hospital room. 
He had two more days with his sisters. That was a Thursday. On a Saturday, his sister called and said that Gordon had called her to his bedside and said, would you please pray me home? And this man who had lived his life kicking and screaming, raging and angry, died so quietly and so peacefully because he knew where he was going. He'd spent his entire life living for himself. Nobody else. And he knew that in the end, that life of selfishness, of keeping everything to his own, had amounted to nothing but regret. There was nothing that he had from that life that he felt good about. See, the real problem with the unnamed rich man, he had life by the tail. He wasn't concerned with impressing God. Even though he clearly knew who God was while he was alive, he was only impressed with impressing people. He wanted to make a good show of it. He didn't live one minute of his life to show God his faith because he didn't have any. Like Gordon lived his entire life without any faith. Lazarus looked up to this rich man in life and longed for what might be. And then he died. And this life was over. And the rich man, like you and I, left his money, his clothing, all of the food, all the people he tried to impress his whole life behind. And he found himself in the last place he ever wanted to be. Gordon laid in that hospital bed knowing he was never going to get up and walk again and he knew where he was going. And he cried out saying, Is there any hope at all? Yeah, our hope is in Jesus. The rich man spent his life trying to impress and amaze the people around him with his wealth when he could have been impressing and amazing God with his love for people like Lazarus and his good stewardship of the wealth that he'd been entrusted. Now the rich man is dead, his life is over, his father and brothers are left behind, and he finally realizes he blew it. He didn't get the Gordon moment. He squandered his wealth just like the prodigal son before him. All of his earthly wealth and possessions could not buy him a place with Abraham in eternity. And all of your wealth and possessions are not going to buy you a place next to your father who's in heaven. The fact is this. God has blessed you more than you want to admit. Because we want more. God's given you more than you've ever said thank you for. So are you going to use what you have for your own desires and ignore the people of the world around you? Or will you love Jesus and love people and teach people to love Jesus because you do? What Gordon found out, and the rich man found out too late, is that Jesus offers us a different life. Ask any of his disciples. When you get to heaven, ask Gordon. Jesus offers us a different death. I know Gordon would agree with that. And Jesus offers us a different eternity than the one that we deserve. Jesus doesn't say anything about the rich man doing anything wrong in life. He doesn't point out his sin or his mistakes or point out his lifestyle. Yet the point is not what he did. It was what he spent his life failing to do. He never used his wealth to help others, specifically Lazarus. See, God's blessed you and I. God's blessed our church. And what God is really looking for is what are we going to do 
with what we have. Because a rich man realized that what he had was fleeting. It wasn't really his at all. And now what he really wanted, what Gordon really wanted, was the life that they hadn't lived, that they turned their backs on. But see, see, we still get to choose. None of us want to be Lazarus in this life, but I'll tell you what, there is no way you want to be the rich man in eternity. So it's up to you when you look in the mirror, and this has been the whole point of this series, what do you see? Who do you see? How honest are you willing to be? Do you see someone... A man or a woman who has placed Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life? Or do you see someone who says, I know that I'm going to heaven, but I'm living on my own? When you look in the mirror, is the person that's looking back at you someone that you feel good about being? Or do you really live feeling the way that Gordon did when I met him? Is the person who stares back at you every morning, that one face that you end up waking up to every single day. You look in the mirror, is that the face of someone who lives as a child of God who's saved and redeemed by the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Or is that someone who stares at you knowing full well you're full of anger and regret and disappointment and excuses and justifications and selfishness? Someone who chooses money and chasing the things of the world because if you do, you're always going to be left asking for and wanting more because it'll never be enough. God, thanks for the stuff, but I really want you to start blessing me now. Choosing to serve and love God will help us to see that we already have everything that we need. And what we'll realize is that the stuff that God gives us, the wealth, the resources the gifts and talents and abilities. He gives us not for us, but so that we can serve the people of the world around us so that when we encounter the Lazarus, whether they're sitting next to you or whether they're on your trip to Welmer, that we encounter Lazarus, we can make a small difference in their life. Helping them to know the joy that we already have in Jesus because we know He's already done it all for us. You know the only thing the only thing that, Jason, I've had 20 years to think about this. Do you know the only thing that changed about Gordon? It wasn't my being there. Is that for the first time in his life, he didn't tell Jesus to go away. For the first time in his life, he said, Jesus, please come to me. He didn't know that he was confessing, but he knew he needed to get rid of all of that garbage. So we end this series, and I'm going to ask you the very same question I asked you when we began. Are you willing to look in the mirror and confront the person who actually stares back at you and be honest? And when it comes to God and money, what will you choose? Will you choose to love and live for God who sent His only Son to die for you? Or are you going to choose to live for and love money and the things of this world? Because even Jesus says that's what it breaks down to for us. We can't serve both. So which will you choose? Choose wisely. Because here's something I've learned Once they publish your obituary, there's no turning back and only one of those choices is going to be there to greet you when you die. Which will you choose? Will you choose to return God's great love for you or will you choose to live for you? Let's pray. God, uh, We don't like to think about being Lazarus. 
But you know, we live in a country that's spiritually broke. We're spiritually empty, and all too often we put ourselves in situations and around people where we don't even realize how broke we are. We put ourselves in situations where we look up to the people that have more money and more stuff and more things and we think more happiness and yet we're completely broken because we don't have any of you. We content ourselves to live off of crumbs of church once in a while and a conversation with a trusted friend who won't tell us or won't tell anyone else about the fact that we actually are interested in you. God, help us to get over that pride. Help us to get over the arrogance that says that we need to do it on our own. Help us to realize without You, we're all Lazarus. We're broke. We're empty. We're sick. God, thank You for the day that You put that man into my life. He changed it. I saw You, God, in a way I'd never seen You before that day. And while I sat in that hospital room sitting next to that bed holding that old man's hand you became real to me in a way that will never go away and God I just pray that you are real that way to people who are listening now because it isn't about me it isn't about my preaching it's about you and your love it's about what you did for us that we cannot do for ourselves and your son Jesus God we give you thanks for him for what he did God, I just pray in Your Holy Spirit that if there's anyone who doesn't know You, who's been pushing You off, who's been living life for themselves, God, I pray, I pray that they would change that right now. They would acknowledge and recognize You for who You are. That they would call sin what it is. They would confess and ask for forgiveness. That they would welcome Jesus in, not just as their Savior, but as the Lord of their life. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I got asked a few years ago by some friends who were my age and getting ready to retire. Lucky dogs. They said, why do you keep doing what you do? It can't be easy. I mean, we, we hear about you. We hear what's going on. And my response surprised me. I said, I can't not. I can't not. And as I thought about my answer going home that day, I thought, why, why, why can I not? And I'll tell you, because that day in the hospital with Gordon, I was in the presence and had a personal encounter. Not just with the man who regretted his life, but with the power and the presence of the living God. And I can't not share that with people. I can't not want that for you. This stuff we've been talking about is hard because it's confronting who we really are. But if we can get through that, we can meet God for who He really is. And God just wants to be real to you. He wants to be your everything. More than all of the stuff that we value, He just wants to be your everything. Gordon had two days living that to its fullest because God was all that he had left. And what you and I don't realize is that God is all that we have left. And I just want you to have that personal encounter that changes your life forever before you get to your deathbed. As you go out this week, love Jesus, love people, and see what you can do to teach people to love Jesus.